All right, let's get into the text. If you haven't already, uh, open your Bible to 2 Timothy, 2 Samuel, chapter 15. We're going to be looking at a story of betrayal. And I don't know about you, but uh, stories of betrayal have a way of invoking emotion in us, don't they? There's a fiction editor named Beth Hill. She wrote, Betrayal is a particularly effective emotion-filled type of conflict that can we use in fiction to create long-lasting problems for our characters. And that's what we're seeing today. The betrayal of Absalom and the revolt and the conspiracy of David is going to create long-lasting problems in the family and in their relationship. According to one writing coach, betrayal is one of the most effective literary tools to bring out the feels of the reader. And whether it's Shakespeare's plays, Hamlet, Macbeth, Julius Caesar, where, whether it's Disney stories like the betrayal of Prince Hans in Frozen, don't get me started about that one. Scar in The Lion King, The Iron Monger in Marvel, maybe you're a Mar Marvel fan. I guess it's a, you're a Disney fan too now because Disney's just taking over everything. Lando Calrissian betraying the rebels in Star Wars Episode Five, Or what about Senator Palpatine twisting the mind of young Anakin to become Darth Vader? Or betrayals have a way of getting to our feel, our emotions. And our story today shows how Absalom betrays his father, takes the kingdom. And whether it's Scar or Hans or Cypher in The Matrix or Macbeth, or Absalom, the tragedy of betrayal always ends in their demise and death. So that's where we're going. How do you respond when someone betrays you? Katie? <laughs> Something's on your face. <laughs> Passive aggressiveness? Withdrawal and isolation? Anger? Lashing out? Scheming for revenge? Slander? As we consider the story of betrayal in 2 Samuel 15 this morning, I think we're going to see some things that David does that show the uniqueness of how you can respond in the Christian faith to betrayal. What does it look like for the faith to be functional? I think we see that in David. He's acknowledging and confessing the providence of God, the plan of God. He's, he's showing emotion. He's being honest about his deep emotion, but he's relating those emotions and he's turning to God in prayer. So let's look and see how the conspiracy starts. 2 Samuel 15, verse 1. After this, after some time, David and Absalom had a conflict because Absalom killed his half-brother Amnon. He runs away. He's been in outside of his father's house for years. David begrudgingly is, brings him back in after the, the wise woman from Tekoa comes and tells him a story. But even after he's brought back to Jerusalem, David doesn't invite him into his house. So Absalom's like, hey, why? It'd be better if I stayed where I was. Why have I come back to my father's house if this is how I'm going to be treated? So he tries to get a hearing with the king, and uh, no one's going to listen to him, so he sets fire to a field. That finally gets their attention, and he has a meeting with the king where the king kisses him, but it seemed more to be a political gesture than to be real reconciliation and redemption. So after this, after that's happened, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run 
before him. So he, he obtains transportation that would make him look like a king. That's what's happening here. 50 men to run before him. This would be a large security force. It would also attract some attention. Right? It's similar to large groups of cars or motorcycles that travel in packs. Right? It signifies someone important. Or the, the motorcade of the president. Right? The, the president has how many vehicles before him? Up to 40 or 50 vehicles. You know, this is a big deal. You got people that, 50 guys that run before you. Absalom's portraying himself now as a big deal. He's someone who's gonna, he's a man of power and prominence. And verse two, he would rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. This is most likely the gate of the palace. And this is where royal courts and councils would come in the morning and they'd meet before the sun and the heat got too intense and they would hear the complaints or, or offer judgments for, for people. So Absalom now, he's standing beside the gate and he's gonna start intercepting individuals who want to have an audience with the king. And when any man had a dispute to come before him with the king for judgment, Absalom would call him and say, from what city are you? And your servant is from such and such a tribe. And Absalom would say, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. That seems to be a lie and an exaggeration. Because just last chapter we saw the woman from Tekoa came and had an audience from the king. So people can speak with the king. They can obtain an audience from him. That's something that's possible. It's not as though David wouldn't hear from anyone. Right? And, and we know the very act of them coming to the gate of the king would signify that they expect to be heard. They expect for their claim to be heard. So Absalom's showing an interest in others. He's intercepting them. And he's saying, verse four, oh, that I were judge in the land. Saying, oh, oh, that I were ruler. Oh, if, oh, if only I were king. Then everyone could bring their cases to me and I would judge them. I would give them justice. He's implying here that he's going to bring better justice than his father. He's implying here that his father is older, he's overburdened, he's not as competent <laughs> as Absalom. If only he was smart as me. If only Absalom were in charge, these things would be taken as promises of how and much better things would happen if I were in charge. <laughs> you can hear Absalom saying this. And people are paying him homage, they're bowing down to him and they're kissing them and he would take out his hand and, and take hold of him and kiss him. And Absalom would put out his hand either to prevent the man from doing this, from bowing down, or to lift him up, to kind of treat him as, no, you're a peer. You're an equal with me. You're a friend. You're not an inferior subject. And ironically, Absalom here is presented as bringing, stealing the hearts of the people of Israel away with these kisses. And this word, stealing the hearts of the people of Israel, is a word in other instances that's translated as tricked or deceived. It's the same word that Laban uses when he's asking Jacob, Genesis 31, 26. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you tricked me and have driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Stolen, stolen the hearts, stole away, took without consent is the language being used here. Absalom is, I understand the people more than David does. He's stealing the hearts away. Where's David in this, you might ask. That's what I was wondering. Does David know that this is happening? He's standing at the gate. Seems like it'd be something that he's doing publicly. The narrator doesn't tell us. Does he hear anything about it and then doesn't stop it? Or are he kind of just ignorant of this? This goes on for some time, the narrator tells us. And Absalom tells David, please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur and Aram, staying, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. And ironically, David says this, 
go in peace. <laughs> we know that's not his heart. He wasn't going in peace. He's sending secret messengers all throughout the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, David's counselor. So Ahithophel, David's advisor, he's also in on this betrayal. And he's not showing his cards until kind of the last moment here. Hithophel goes from the city and the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. The betrayal is not only from his own son, but from his counselor, Ahithophel. And there's a, there's a lot of drama in the household of David. There's a lot of weird family ties in the household of David. So we're told in, second, in Samuel chapter 23 that Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, is one of David's 30. So his mighty men. And it was noted that Bathsheba was the daughter of Eliam in 2 Samuel 11, verse 3. So it could be that Ahithophel was actually the grandfather of Bathsheba. So there might be some ulterior motives here for Ahithophel. He's saying, hey, this is how you treated my, my family, my granddaughter, and you killed my grandson-in-law? That we say that? Bathsheba's husband? Yeah. Yes. Thanks, Rick. This complex family ties, it could be that he wanted revenge on David for how his family was treated. So Absalom goes to Hebron, which belongs to the tribe of Judah. This is where David was first crowned king. So Absalom was kind of going after the heart of David's support in the tribe of Judah. It's a strategic place. It's going to undercut him. And David hears about this in verse 13. The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And David said to his servants, who are with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left 10 concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. So they're they might be trying to get organized here at the last house, which is on the outskirts of Judah. They're trying to get organized for this flea eastward out of the city. And as they're getting organized, all the servants pass by him and the Carathites and the Pelathites and the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before him. Now, these are not Israelites. These are Philistines. These are not from the people of Israel. And David had gained influence and trust with these warriors. They were faithful to David. So much so that when David says, hey, you guys could go back home. You don't need to get involved in this. Go back and say with the king, you're a foreigner and you're also in exile from your home. He says, you came only yesterday. <laughs> Which might be an exaggeration for just saying, you came recently. It's a recent move. You could go back to your homeland. You don't need to stay with me, guys. And listen to how they respond. As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for life or for death, there also will your servant be. It's ironic that enemies of Israel, the Philistines, are more loyal to David than his own son. And, they, and all the land wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on towards the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok, 
came also with all the Levites bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. And the king said to Zadok, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. So unlike previous leaders of Israel, David is not treating the Ark of the Covenant like some sort of good luck charm. You guys remember this? People of Israel are defeated, they lose, and then the elders think, oh, let's get the ark. <laughs> That'll make it so that we win. Let alone we have to ask, maybe we're in disobedience or maybe <laughs> we shouldn't go into the war in this. They're treating the ark of God like a good luck charm. David's not going to do that. And maybe Zadok was bringing out the ark of the covenant of God to, to kind of symbolize and signify to David that, that they believe David is still the anointed king of God. He is the rightful king. He is the rightful ruler. But look what David says in verse 26. If he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. In the midst of betrayal, his own son revolting against him, leaving his palace, being forced to go and flee into the wilderness like he was before when he was hunted by Saul, his own son. Look what he says. Let him, let God do to me what seems good to him. David is confessing, he's acknowledging the providence, the plan, the sovereignty of God. He says, I'm not taking the ark with me. Leave it in Jerusalem. If God's going to restore me or not, it's in God's hands. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Let him do whatever seems best. Let him do what pleases him. I'm not going to try to manipulate. I'm not trying to coerce this. It's in his hands. How David responds when being betrayed is this, faith. It's in his hands. He's not avenging himself. The king also said to Zadok the priest, verse 27, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your sons. Him as your son and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, see, I will wait for you at the fords of the wilderness until word comes back for, from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. And what David is starting to do here at the end of the chapter is he's, he's setting up like a spy network. So he's, he's going he's to still know what's going on in, in the palace with Absalom. And he's wise, he's tactful in setting up this kind of network, a system of reporting. He's going to tell Hushai, tell Absalom, I'm going to be your servant. Just as I was a servant to your father, I'm going to be your servant. But then you can start talking to Zadok, the priest, and Abiathar, and then you can inform me what's really going on. And the, sec the section of the story concludes with Hushai, David's friend, the one who's going to be the, the communicator of, of the news, what's going on, reporting. <coughs> He's coming into Jerusalem just as Absalom does. So it kind of ends that chapter of this story, which is going to continue in further conflict between Absalom and David. But that's how the story ends. He's coming back into Jerusalem as soon as Absalom is. It sets the stage for what happens next. So we have here David, his own son has revolted against him. He's usurped the throne. He's proclaimed himself king. And David is fleeing into the wilderness with those who are loyal to him. What can we learn about betrayal in the story and how the Christian faith should function in our life in this way? You guys with me? We have, or we are, or we will experience loss, pain, betrayal, breaking of trust, suffering. What causes that? Jesus' brother James said, what causes fights and quarrels among you? <laughs> Why do you guys quarrel so much? And why do you fight? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. 
So you're self-centered, you're, you're ruling, overmastering passions or ruling, and they cause you to, you don't have and you want, so you take and you murder. You covet. You cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Our motivations are out of line with God's desires. We're self-centered, self-focused. So we see Absalom wanted the kingdom. He begins to undercut his father's leadership. He's, he's tricking, he's stealing away the hearts of the people. And before we can get too critical of David for being passive or not knowing, not knowing that <laughs> revolution, rebellion, conspiracy is starting at his own footstep, it's wise for us to consider that, that we can knowingly keep things in our life that steal our hearts away from the true and rightful king. Isn't it true? We can knowingly keep things in our lives that steal away our hearts from the king, the things that tempt us to rebel against God. So there's conflict, there's conspiracy, there's revolt. All right, let's, let's summarize how David responds. First, the acknowledgement and confession of the providence of God. He says, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. David is acknowledging the providence, the, the power, the plan of God. He's putting his life, his plans, his circumstances in the hands of God. He's saying, I'm not taking the Ark of Covenant with me. I'm going to leave it in Jerusalem. If God's going to restore me, he's going to bring it about. If I'm done, I'm done. But if I'm going to be restored, he's going to do it. Let him do to me what seems good. He can do whatever pleases him. I'm trusting him. And he's crying in the midst of that trust. He's being honest about his pain and his sadness. He's displaying his emotion, right? And experiencing pain and being honest about how you're feeling and weeping and experiencing sadness and trusting in the promises of God are not opposite, right? You guys ever experienced this? Maybe you've been in a place of pain and suffering and you go to a brother or sister and they tell you, well, you know, God is good, right? It's like, it's almost as if we're kind of, we can be awkward with someone displaying emotion or loss to us and we think we've got to try to fix it. We don't want to sit in that with them. I've seen people feel awkward with emotional responses. They don't know what to do, so they try to minimize, dismiss, silence, avoid this weeping under the premise of I'm not allowed to be sad because I know that God's plan is good. And if not, we're honest about our humanity. We're not allowing our emotions. Just trying to sever those. We, we could become dead inside. Yeah. Yeah. Don't ask me how I know this. <laughs> Done this. When in reality, God, I think, allows us, he, he created us with these emotions to, to not sever, but to lead us into deeper trust and communion with him to rest into him. It's lament and a deep display of emotion. This is what he's, he's ascending the Mount of Olives. He's weeping as he's going. He's barefoot, sign of mourning. His head is covered. All the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. They're crying over this tragedy, this loss, this betrayal. David's not pretending to have it all together. When we experience injustice in relationship and society and our culture, we feel it in the world. We weep, we cry, don't we? It shows that we love, that we care, that we're invested. We experience something tragic and sad, and we go, woof, didn't affect me at all. <laughs> Do, are we invested? Are we love? Do we love it? 
So he's not only acknowledging the providence and sovereignty of God, he's not only putting in God's hands, he's weeping, but in this emotion, he's relating to God. He's turning to God in prayer. He's relating his emotions. He's turning to God in prayer. Look, verse 31. It, says, it was told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. You, could, you can imagine David saying, Ahithophel, my advisor, my trusted friend, he's betrayed me too. God, how could you, have, how could you let this happen? Just imagine. <laughs> I'd probably do something like that. What does he do? He prays. He says, oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. It's another indication that he's trusting God in the process because he's praying, God, only you can change these circumstances. Only you can do something here. So I'm going to pray to you. And I don't, it sounds a little strong to pray for someone's counsel to turn to foolishness. I haven't done that. But he's taking these emotions, he's trusting in the Lord's hands. Please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So it's, it's not a kind of disjointed, God is good, I'm always happy. But it's not a kind of also, I'm always in the feels, I'm overwhelmed by my feelings, I'm crippled by emotions. It's, no, it's relating to God in prayer, with these things. We have a song, a prayer written by David in this, in this moment as he's fleeing Absalom. Psalm 3 records this. So what David writes, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to you, to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O Lord, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is a psalm of faith, isn't it? A psalm of trust. And when we think about how we respond when someone betrays us, when we experience break of trust, loss of relationships, deep relational pain, we see the uniqueness of the Christian faith and how it causes someone to respond. You don't say this kind of thing, you don't write this kind of psalm apart from faith in God. It's not recorded that David says, God, how could you do this? You gave me a promise. I wanted to build you a house. And you told me, oh, you want to be, build me a house? No, no, no. I'm going to build you a house. And I'm going to cause you from your lineage to be, to be sitting on a throne that's going to be eternal forever. He's going to sit on an eternal kingdom. David's like, what the heck, God? How's that going to happen? I'm not even on the throne. Yeah. Certainly, it's not Absalom. You don't want me to build you a house, but you want Absalom to build you a house? You're not trustworthy. Not how David responds. Right? And if this world, if your life, if your circumstances are just kind of a big cosmic accident, it's really on us to do something about it, isn't it? Yeah. It's up to us. We'll be anxious. It's all up to us. You can't trust someone else. You can't trust someone outside of yourself. There's no one out there that's going to help you. You got to do it yourself. You don't need anyone else. You put yourself in your situation. So you could be plagued by guilt and shame. How could you allow this to happen? How could you be so stupid? Or you'll be proud, right? I, I'm a conqueror in my life. I've overcome all kinds of obstacles. I don't need anyone else. I'm, I'm proud. I'm self-sufficient. And if in this world, the pain and suffering, the loss you experience, that there is a kind of God, but the God is, he's not loving, he's not good, and he's not present, that's depressing. 
The sadness will compound. Yes, there's a God, but he is not good. He's not, he doesn't really love you enough to actually get involved and do something about it. So you're stuck. He doesn't care. He doesn't have redemptive purposes. You can become jaded and angry. Years of pastoral ministry, I've seen these two extremes, right? If, however, there is a God, and this God is good and present and loving, there's purposes for your pain. There's redemptive purposes in your pain. It leads to a kind of humble confidence, doesn't it? Because you can say, I don't know why I'm going through this and what God is going to do. And just because I can't think of a good reason for it doesn't mean that there isn't a good reason. We say that, people say that, well, how could a good and loving God allow so much pain and evil? Well, you're essentially saying, well, because you can't think of a reason that a good and loving God would allow so much pain and evil, then you can't be good. It's kind of an intellectual pride and assumption. If there is a good, present, loving God, but there's also pain and suffering and betrayal and evil, it leads to a, a humble confidence. It's something, as the scriptures talk about, is you can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's something unique and different. If there is an all-knowing, all-sufficient, all-good, all-loving God, it is, in, it is in knowing our place. It is in humbling ourselves that we say, God, I don't always see your purposes. I don't always see your plans in my pain, but just because I can't see them doesn't mean you're not doing something good. We can trust, we can confess the good and wise providence of God. We can display and be honest about our pain and an emotion. We can relate to God and come to him in prayer, ultimately when we think about who David points to. As we think about the goodness and the redemptive pain of Christ on the cross, there's a way I, I enjoy preaching of not just, okay, here's how we see David be a good example to us. Now, be like David, guys. Trust God more. <laughs> Relate to God in prayer. Do what David does. But that's, that's not the storyline of the Bible. The storyline of the Bible is all these characters, they, they point, they point forward, they forecast to Christ and to Jesus. And it's from looking at his love that we're changed. It, it does something. It does something in me. And I pray that I can communicate that in a way that does something in you. Amen. There was another king who wept in Jerusalem. There was another king who came from the lineage of David who left his throne because of the rebellion of his people. You know this king? There was another man of sorrows who went to the Mount of Olives after his betrayal. There was another king from Israel who wasn't just king of Israel, but he won nations and peoples to him. A king who was betrayed after a kiss. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. As he was betrayed, he wept. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed. He was sorrowful and troubled. His soul was very sorrowful, sorrowful to the point of death. And he prays. He falls on his face and he says, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not I will, but you will. See how David points to this? See this confession of faith? My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it. Your will be done. But Jesus didn't leave Jerusalem and have to set up a spy network <laughs> because he had to come back and reclaim it. He was going to deal the final blow to the rebellion itself Amen. by dying. 
His head was covered with the crown of thrones, thorns. His, he was mocked for claiming to be the son of God that he couldn't, you know, he claimed to be the son of God, but he couldn't save himself. But Jesus knew if he didn't die, if he tried to save himself, he couldn't save others. Wouldn't be the salvation for others. The price of the rebellion must be paid. The consequences of sin is death. Death had to be dealt for sinners and rebels like you and me. And while it's good and helpful to look at the life of David and see the principles that he displayed, the confession of God's plan, putting his trust in him, displaying the emotion, relating to God in prayer, our hearts can be changed and shaped and formed as we see what Jesus has done for us as we have rebelled against him, as we have betrayed against him. When our hearts are captured by the love and grace and forgiveness of Christ, we can be changed from the inside out. Not so much that as we say, look at how good David is. We kind of try to change our behavior that our hearts are changed in the moment, in the spot. Jesus can change our hearts like that if we're gripped by his love. When the story of David and Absalom, when it stays distant, when it stays theoretical, when it stays ah, a couple thousand years ago, it doesn't matter to my life. Bible's kind of boring. Stays theoretical. We're not going to be moved, are we? (laughs) Come join the religious Bible nerd club. (laughs) The point is just more information. Few will be motivated by that. But when we see how we have been the Absalom, when we have been the betrayer, the rebel, when we have rejected the good and kindly rule of God, yet while we were still enemies, he came for us. He gave his life for us. He loved us. He forgave us. We read the story in a different way. We can respond in faith and trust. We've seen the goodness of God ultimately because we've seen how God can use pain and suffering for redemption in Christ. We can say, God, I don't know what you're doing with suffering as people might betray me as I'm experiencing loss of relationship and broken trust, but I do know you used it on the cross. You took evil and suffering and you used it for good in Jesus. Therefore, I trust you. We can respond in faith and trust when we've seen Jesus, we've seen his redemptive purposes. Even when we don't see or we feel the pain, we can look to Christ and ask for his help. Confessing his providence, trusting in his plan, bringing our emotion and our pain and our suffering to him and crying to God for help in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, many may say there is no God. There is no goodness in God. There's no salvation in God. But you are a shield about us. We have seen your goodness in the story of your people. We have seen your goodness in the story of the cross. So help us, Father, please, to respond in faith as we experience pain and suffering and heartache. Help us to walk alongside each other to weep with those who weep. Help us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Help us not to try and fix others, but to help others relate to the only one who can fix. Help us to stay in humility. Father, here we are. Do to us whatever seems good to you. You have showed us your steadfast love and faithfulness. We trust you, and even as we don't, even in our unbelief, help us to believe.
Thank you for the ways in which we can see Jesus in this story of David and Absalom. Thank you that you did not treat us like we so often treat our enemies. You're not passive aggressive. You're not withdrawn and distant. You're not lashing out in anger. You're coming down and inviting us into union, relationship, healing, joy. Pray that your spirit would be at work in our church, Father. Thank you for the work that you are doing. We pray for this church. Father, do what seems good to you with it. We are yours. Pray this for our families. Do with them what seems good to you, Father. We pray for our enemies, those who have hurt us, betrayed us. Help us to forgive as you have forgiven us, Jesus. We pray that even as we experience pain and suffering, that there may be pain in the night, but joy comes in the morning. Lord, thanks for the way that you use pain in my life to humble me, to draw me into deeper trust and relationship with you. Thank you that you've used suffering and pain in my life to create greater longing for what is to come, the new heavens and the new earth, glory. Lord, thanks for what you're doing in our church. Just feel humbled and, and grateful. And, and I ask that you'd continue to help us to grow in humility. We know and trust your word tells us you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Be with us as we sing songs to you, as, as we reflect on the cross. Would you be glorified in us? In Jesus' name, amen.